0: Hello, this historic momenters. I don't know, I've been trying to think of a fun thing to call fans of the show, but it's really not working. Um, What I wanted to do is just catch up on a few things. Uh, Particularly, we'll be talking about the recall election in California, but this is kind of... To get a little more content out, to get more quick updates like this, Um, there's a lot of time between episodes, and the busier I get, there's more time between episodes, and they just take a lot of production time and energy, so I wanted to try this briefer, less formal, not really scripted format try this out just so you hear from me a little bit more often. And yes, the Ghost of the Confederacy uh, series that I'm doing is still going. I am working furiously to get Part 2 done for you. Uh, The good news is with how long this has taken, I am pretty much almost done with Part (laughs) 3. So um, when uh, Part 2 comes out, hopefully, fingers crossed, it won't take six months for Part 3 to come out. So I appreciate your patience for that, and I'm hoping to get that to you soon. The recall election of California Governor Gavin Newsom. If you haven't caught much of this, here's the breakdown. On September 14th, California voters voted on two questions. Uh, The first was a yes or a no vote on if Newsom should be recalled, and the second was if yes, who should succeed him. A majority was required for a yes vote and then a plurality for the second, or basically whoever got the most votes. Uh, So who was running to succeed him? Well, it was a pretty slim, simple, narrow list of 46 candidates. My God. Uh, nine Democrats and 24 Republicans. It was quite the lineup. Some of the uh, more notable ones was one Democrat, a YouTuber named Kevin Paffrath, I think is how you pronounce that. Uh, He's in real estate. Um, His YouTube channel, I think, is about housing and stocks and whatnot. Um, He's a millionaire. He made like $10 million on YouTube in one year alone. He's 29, so he's my age, which makes me feel great about my income. But his platform was running um, as basically the insurance policy candidate. I mean, the idea was essentially, if Newsom gets recalled, write my name in the spot so that Democrats at least don't lose the governorship. (laughs) I mean, kind of a weird lack of confidence, but it's kind of smart, too. I don't really know how I feel about it. But, of course, um, Newsom's campaign ran on, you know, vote no and don't fill in any name, uh, which I thought was also kind of risky, uh, I would say. Another notable name was Caitlyn Jenner, who got about 1% of the vote. And, I mean, she she was, like, number 12 out of the millions of candidates. So, I mean, that's, I guess, kind of good. Um... The other two notable ones were former San Diego mayor, um, Kevin Falconer, I believe is how you pronounce his name. Not sure on that either. But he's more of a moderate Republican. He's a fiscal conservative, a uh, moderate on social issues, sort of your um, classical Republicanism. Um, and then contrast him with radio host Larry Elder was a fun one. He was definitely uh, more of the Trump Candidate style. But what were the defining issues in this race? Well, basically, the accusations from those who supported recalling Newsom were essentially that he mishandled the state's pandemic response, um, support for sanctuary city policies, uh, inadequate. Efforts to deal with homelessness, I think, were some of the other issues that came up. But at the end of the day, as of this recording, Newsom is pulling out with nearly 64% of the vote or no on recall and about 36% on yes. Those numbers are likely to change a little bit. There's still a lot of votes to be counted, but um, considering how many votes are left to be counted, the results probably won't change a lot um, and it really won't be close. So what are my takeaways here? First, this race changed pretty dramatically in the last month. Um, From polling and other data points and so on, it looked pretty competitive. And a yes vote in particular looked like it had a pretty decent shot. And that says a lot, because the GOP had a pretty good chance here, much more than I think anybody would have thought. But, But what happened? Because the result was not close and Newsom came out pretty decisively. My main takeaway here is that the GOP had a golden opportunity. And honestly, my own personal views aside, and speaking strictly politically and strategy-wise here, um, honestly, <sighs> the GOP just blew it. In my own opinion, the GOP would have been wise to keep Larry Elder out of the race. Um, if you're running as a Republican in California, 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 in a state where Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one easily, and you suddenly, miraculously, find yourself in a situation where you have a chance? Don't run as a Republican. If you're going to have an R in front of your name, don't run under the banner of Donald Trump. I'm sorry, it just doesn't take an elections nerd or a a deep diver to see that. Now, I recognize that there are all sorts of political implications here, and it's really not that simple, but it does come back to a theme that I've returned to on the GOP since I started this show uh, last summer. Obviously, the GOP was split. Uh, Kevin Falconer, mayor of San Diego, was viewed favorably by the Republican establishment. Honestly, he was absolutely the right candidate for the GOP. Classical Republican, physical conservative, moderate on social issues. And the support that he did gain from some Republican leaders seemed to signal that the California GOP really was hoping for a turning away from the nationalized culture war issues, and really, to put a name on it, um, Trumpism. Because honestly, that type of moderate Republican, that route, is really the GOP's only chance in California at this point they're already outnumbered. You're talking about coastal, liberal metropolitan areas. It's the exact thing that the GOP derides and attacks nationally, you know, attaching Pelosi to everything and so on. As a Republican, you're not going to win in California on that platform. And honestly, again, purely a strategic standpoint here, it's kind of embarrassingly stupid to think that you could. Uh, So a turn back towards some more classical republicanism, broadening the party's appeal, you know, the things the National Party should do after a major presidential loss, it's really the wise thing to do here. That's the only thing that holds any promise for the GOP to gain any type of foothold in, in California the Trump base you get with a candidate like Larry Elder, who did end up getting uh, the plurality, um, I believe, for the candidate to secede Newsom, had he been recalled. He used to be a radio personality. He has decades of content out there that's just ripe for the kind of attacks that mobilize the Democratic base. That's really the problem here, as I see it, and why the GOP Well, and I mean, sure, some GOP leaders probably did try to keep Elder out of the race, but really, at the end of the day, that's where the party just blew it. Because we had very little indication that the Democratic base was mobilized or really engaged, and and that's part of why it looked like it was pretty competitive at one point. But Larry Elder really did Newsom's work for him. Newsom did a good job of staying on message from day one. This was framed in a particular way, and and that stuck. Um, As Newsom said several months ago, I've got the quote right here that this was a, quote, Republican recall, backed by the RNC, anti-mask and anti-vax extremists and pro-Trump forces who want to overturn the last election and have uh, opposed much of what we have done to fight the pandemic. And there it is. That goes along with the fact that mask mandates and, and even a vaccine mandate is pretty popular in the state. And honestly, it's, it's hard to fight that when California has one of the lowest infection rates with the Delta variant. So th- this election was not a referendum on Newsom. Newsom successfully turned this into a referendum on the Republican Party, on anti-mask, on anti-vax, on Trumpism, so on. And, and here's the thing. I'm not a Newsom fan. I think he's kind of an idiot. And he had made enough stupid choices that had the GOP really rallied behind Falconer or some other moderate like him that just kept their head down, didn't stir the pot too wildly. Honestly, I don't think the Democratic base loves Newsom enough to really have turned out for this. And so even if Newsom still wasn't recalled, you could have seen a pretty tight race and that has political benefit. I mean, he's going into re-election, I believe it's in 2024, and a thin win here would have given the GOP the momentum for the next time around. But no, the Democratic base was mobilized by the end of this, and, and the California GOP decided not to endorse a candidate because they were scared of dividing the party. Oh wait, I... I have some late-breaking news here. The Republican Party is already divided. What are you doing? (sighs) You know, we just saw it last week. Republican Representative from Ohio, Anthony Gonzalez, announced that he will not be re-running or running for re-election. Now, why is this important? Because he is the first of the 10 House Republicans that voted to impeach Donald Trump earlier this year for incitement of insurrection. Um, in a statement, Representative Gonzalez said, quote, While my desire to build a fuller family life is at the heart of my decision, it is also true that the current state of our politics, especially many of the toxic dynamics inside our own party, is a significant factor in my decision. He also called Trump a cancer, and 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 there is also indication that Gonzalez and his family had been getting death threats. And that's something we're seeing with a lot of Republicans who have criticized Donald Trump. And of course, in Donald Trump's statement following Gonzalez's announcement, he said, quote, one down, nine to go. Now, what does this mean for the GOP? You know, I, I have said it on this show. I've written about it in my articles on Medium, but you know, a lot of us commenters have referred to this as a civil war within the GOP. But I was recently reading one writer's opinion about that, and he brought up a really good point that I think was pretty spot on. I I wish I could remember who it was. He, He basically said that a civil war would really be two factions fighting for the soul of the Republican Party. But that's not really what's happening here. The question of who owns the Republican Party, who owns the soul of the Republican Party, the question of where this is all headed has already been answered. That's unambiguously Donald Trump. So it's much less a civil war we're seeing than it is a purge. And Gonzalez's retirement really drives this point home. It's that we're probably going to see a lot more of this. You know, if your family is getting death threats. If you're facing an impossible primary challenge because the Trump base now makes up the base of the Republican Party, and you're likely to lose as a moderate, it's probably really hard to make that decision to keep going. It probably doesn't become worth it at a certain point. And so what we are really seeing is a collapse of moderate Republicanism. And you know, I I have to be honest, that for me personally, again, take away uh, uh, my own personal political beliefs, it really kind of sucks. Insofar as as I'm really sad that authentic conservatives are losing their party, if that hasn't already happened, uh, which I think I would argue that it has. And, and that's tragic to me because A, you have a significant portion of the country that no longer has representation within the dominant parties. And B, I mean, authentic conservatism, whatever your beliefs, is a healthy part of dialogue in this country. I was reading a book just the other day and the author put it really well. He was like, you know, conservatism and liberalism are like the yin and yang of this country. And I think that's absolutely true. Conservatism and liberalism as a sort of tug of war over the center, that's really ideal. And when I say center, I don't mean the center of the political ideological landscape as in the Senate, because that's massively distortive and part of the problem here. But I really mean the center of the country, the center of the political landscape, um, political ideological landscape of voters. When we are tug-of-warring and holding that tension over the center, that's when our politics is the healthiest. That's when Congress works. That's when political conversation is productive. That's when things actually get done. That's when real genuine compromise happens. Because right now, we're in this place where we feel the other side, whatever side you're on, is an existential threat to the country. And that is, tragically and disconcertingly, um, where we're at right now for both parties. So how do we get out of it? I, I really don't have the answer. I know on this show, I try to contribute to that conversation in a way that is... You know you're gonna know my personal views pretty well. I'm going to be authentic with you. I'm going to be morally clear on the things I feel I need to be morally clear on, um, but I'm also trying to be intellectually honest, and I'm trying to approach politics in a way that invites everyone to the conversation, even if you disagree with me. Uh, so it's a it's an approach that's health. The year, I guess. I mean, I'm not gonna lie to you. It's a hard doing a politics podcast in 2021. And, and of course, I've done episodes too on uh, how to have political conversations that are healthy. Um, Slaying trolls is that episode if you're interested. I think the other thing I am attempting to do here is to look at controversial topics and look at them from an angle that isn't what you're going to hear on either Fox News or MSNBC. I think that's something I've observed is that when political conversation starts to derail, it's because we're all repeating the same narratives. And, you know, when those conversations happen with pundits and parties and politicians, those talking points are prepared. And then they go out, and when we're engaged face-to-face on those issues, we already know what the talking points are for the other side. So we already have a response. And then it's not really a conversation anymore, it's a performance, and it just sort of descends because now it's like the conversation was predetermined to fail from the start. So I think getting out of those narratives is a way that I try to separate this show from either rut and attempt to give both Democrats and Republicans, both conservatives and liberals, at least one thing that stomps you and makes you think. I don't know how good I am at that, to be honest. There are definitely episodes that I've gone back to and, and listened to and think, wow, this is really one-sided. <laughs> I don't think I gave the other side of the issue enough. But on the other hand, there are episodes as well that I've gone back to and felt that I gave too much to the other side and maybe I wasn't being as morally clear as... As I needed to be. I mean, that reflection really is an ongoing process for me. But really, outside of trying to change conversation, and, and honestly, I think that's the best thing we can do, this is a hard time to be an American. It's hard because we really disagree on what it means to be an American, and that's tough. You know, when we look at the flag and what it symbolizes and what it means to us, you know, it's like we're all seeing a different flag and to some degree that's unavoidable because we're human and we have subjective experiences but it does feel like we're not only living in two different countries but we're really living in two different worlds and and I don't know that there are easy answers for that i think the best any of us can do really is to keep moving forward trying to keep having that conversation well this turns out pretty quick <laughs> Thank you for sharing in my grief. <laughs> but really, at the end of the day, we are all Americans. And if we can't define some unifying value of what that means, I guess I would say that as a student of history, uh, that it's, it's that we endure. I think I've said that on the show before, but that's really what it comes down to for me. We, we get through. But I do know that we're headed for a major electoral shift. The bottom line is that the Trump Republicans don't have the numbers to win elections. You know, there are plenty of deeply red states where they can and they will, but in the swing states like Georgia, we're going to see Republicans lose ground because Trump candidates are going to win primaries, but they're going to lose generals. Anyway, a few other random notes. Those of you who follow the show on Instagram or on Patreon... You may remember a few months ago an announcement about me taking a step back from the podcast due to the challenges of producing this by myself. Episodes obviously are pretty far apart um, because they're they're time intensive to make. Um, first of all, thank you so much to those of you who reached out to me after that announcement. I really appreciate your support and for telling me how the show is impacting your life. That means a ton to me and I will never get bored of getting those messages. My biggest concern really was kind of the inability uh, for the show to grow because episodes are inconsistent. And the stuff I do on Instagram is really time-consuming as well, and it's it's just hard to be consistent and get shows out on a regular basis. And that also makes it hard to build new things that I'm in the process of building, like the YouTube channel and, and the like. That being said, I figure since because most of you've stuck it out with me anyway through all of that, that that I'm just going to go ahead and just keep going and 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 try not to put too much pressure on myself to be as consistent and timely as I want to be and and really just let this show become whatever it is trying to become. That's part of an episode like this. It's it's really just a quick effort to get more content out there so you can hear from me more often and stay a bit more updated on things that are happening. I figure at this point we can just kind of start throwing things at the wall and see what sticks. Um, so your your feedback is a huge help to me in seeing what works and what doesn't. So please do not hesitate. You can email me at, at com. That email I know has has changed. But ty at com, t y and of course you can always message me on Instagram. The handle is at thishistoric. Give the show a follow there. Um, remember to subscribe because episodes are inconsistent and that way you don't miss anything. On a final note, something I haven't been able to address on the show directly. I am as diligent as I can be as a one-person production that deals particularly in history. I am not a historian, and I don't always get every detail right. I'm going to get it wrong from time to time. Now, I've been trying to find a way to address mistakes, and issue corrections um i've gone through a few ideas that kind of make sense but then don't work very well like issuing corrections in the show notes or updating on the episode itself or in the following episode the description field of each episode can be updated Um, But they don't update for you if you've already downloaded the episode. Um, Issuing them on the show itself is pretty much the same thing, and it also takes up show time. Um, So I'm currently working to add a page to the show's website, thishistoric.com, that can act as a running sort of updated list listeners can check out for corrections. Um, I'll keep you updated on the progress uh, as I'm trying to get that up but i know some of you have have pointed out some things and i've i've um been working to address those and and so on and so forth but of course if you ever hear anything on this show that you know is incorrect or even sounds suspect please don't hesitate to reach out to me again tie at this historic.com premise of the show is that history is crucial to the fabric of our lives today and even more crucial is getting it right so please don't hesitate to do that. But all in all, I started this show in July of 2020, and I didn't think I'd make it this far, but here we are. Um, and it's all thanks to you, especially to my patrons. You really keep the show going. So thank you again for your support. Thank you for your patience. And thanks for joining me, Ty Wyckoff, on The Millennial's Guide to This Historic Moment. We create most of the conditions and the convictions which have led us to this day, but this generation has a responsibility to resolve them.